Hey everyone, and welcome to the 60th episode of The Liam McCollum Show. So yes, I've been gone for a long time, and I actually might have a few more followers because a post of mine went viral. Um, I might do a recording about that later, I'm not sure yet. But I was at Mises University and Revolution 21 this summer, and I was also doing a pre-law internship um, with a law firm, so I've been really busy. Um, I might actually do a podcast on Mises U with someone I met there. Uh, He's a pretty interesting guy, and I think that his story is awesome. Um, But this interview is a big one. Um, It's with Carol Roth, and we're going to talk about her book, The War on Small Business. She appeared on Michael Malice's show, and I was really impressed. She also went on Liberty Lockdown, and I actually met Clint. He's really awesome. I met him at Rev21. So you guys should definitely listen to her interview with them. Um, But I hope you enjoy this. I'm going to link to all of her information in the description, and you should also check out her book. I'll link to that as well. Also, just so you know, I had the setting on Zoom set on speaker mode, and it was picking up some stuff on my end of the call like every five seconds. I don't know why I've never had this happen. But so it goes actually back and forth between Carol and I like every five seconds, and it's kind of obnoxious. Maybe it won't bother you guys, but it bothered me. I just wanted to give you a heads up on that. So you can watch me on YouTube. I think there are some visual elements, like I embed some photos in this interview. Um, Otherwise, you can subscribe to me on Odyssey. You can subscribe to me on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and please give me a five-star rating. Uh, And if any of you are new, you can also subscribe to me or follow me on Twitter and Instagram at M-L-I-A-M-M-C-C-O-L-L-U-M. And then I will link to all of that stuff in the description. I hope you enjoy this interview. I had a lot of fun doing it. Um, And Carol's book is a very important contribution to everything that happened in the last year. So I hope you guys buy it and I hope you enjoy this interview. Here she is. All right, everyone. So I have another great interview with me. I kind of took a hiatus, but I'm back and I'm hoping that this is the first of many really great interviews to come. And I'm just going to read her intro really quick. Kayla Roth is a content creator, recovering investment banker, author of The War on Small Business, entrepreneur, TV pundit, and host, and New York Times bestselling author of The Entrepreneur Equation. She has worked in a variety of capacities across industries, including currently as an outsourced CCO, as a director on public and private company boards, and as a strategic advisor. She advocates for small business, small government, and big hair. So welcome. Thanks. Yes, I brought a a little bit. It's it's not like overly crazy today, but it's a little big today. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it looks great. So I'm just curious. um, When I was doing some research on you, it said that you were you had a bunch of appearances on like Fox News, MSNBC at one point in time. And then in a recent interview, you mentioned that um, they kind of stopped talking to you and maybe to gain some credibility with my listeners. You want to explain like why this happened and is it anything that you said, I guess, that that would have done that? Yeah. So just to clarify, so I have been um, in media, media adjacent uh, as a pundit, basically eh, probably for about 12 years now. So I've been across all the networks, been on like pretty much every show you can think of from Bill Maher's show through MSNBC, CNN. I used to be a contributor to CNBC. Fox News, Fox Business. I actually spend most of my time 
uh, Fox Business, the first and some other places. So it's not that anyone stopped talking to me, but what happened when I wrote the book, The War on Small Business, is that HarperCollins, who's my publisher, who approached me to write the book, when they reached out to many of the shows, which I've done many times over the years at some of the kind of mainstream places, uh, particularly like the biggest morning shows and prime time outlets, uh, and some people who used to have shows that are now doing other kinds of media, they did not take the opportunity to talk about the book, which was really bizarre, um, you know, A, given the topic and how timely it is, given the fact that they know me and I've worked with them before and that they call me to talk about a bunch of other silly things. And so the fact that there was a lot of media who didn't want to cover it, you know, made me really sit down and reflect. I talked actually to Michael Malice about this a little bit about the war on the war on small business. And my hypothesis is that because it isn't Biden's war on small business or Trump's war on small business. You know, it's it's something that I did very credibly. That's a systemic issue. That's not taking just one side and giving one full slant. I think that the media has become so polarized that they want to have that slant and they don't want to talk about the systemic issue. And there's probably others that you know don't want to be because either they were complicit in their reporting or their advertisers were complicit in some way. And so, um, you know, there have been, you know, let, let's be clear, there've been plenty of great outlets that works, but some of the ones that should have covered it as well also did not. Yeah, that that's extremely interesting because I mean, so a lot of people, I don't think anyone will really acknowledge or anyone no one will deny that we're currently going through a crisis and there's an economic crisis going on and that there are small businesses that are that are being hurt. Um, but I think that currently people will, a lot of people will blame it on COVID and only COVID. But the war on small business seems to imply that it's intentional. Um, so do you just want to break down what you think is happening? Because I think that especially a lot of leftists who used to be opposed to corporate power, they're now falling in line. Yeah, yeah it's really, it is really bizarre. Um, and apologies as we're on video here, we've got, I've, I've got my window blocked out, but the sun is just coming in. <laughs> so I, if half my face disappears, I, I'm sorry about that. Yeah, no problem. Um, yeah, so... First of all, there are people who will actually argue that we're not in an economic crisis. They will look at the uh, stock market. They will look at the GDP bounce back. They will look at a lot of the statistics and they will say the economy is doing fine. And I've actually seen this argued in major outlets. Uh, I remember a specific op-ed in the LA Times that made me very angry, you know, to which I you know, responded hundreds of thousands of small businesses that were murdered last year you would tend to disagree with that. But because that macro art um, looks so good, that, that's sort of the takeaway. And what ended up happening here is, is really a lot of gaslighting. You had the government pick these winners and losers. They decided who was going to thrive and who was going to fight to survive based on these essential and non-essential labels, which is in and of itself horrific to think about. And that enables a wealth transfer. It enabled a wealth transfer from Main Street to Wall Street 
not just in terms of revenue, consumer dollars that were going to go to the small businesses that went to Target or Walmart or Amazon, because, you know, those are the places that were open, um, but also the Federal Reserve's interference in the markets and the trillions of dollars they put on their balance sheet that expanded valuations and allowed for seven tech companies to gain $3.4 trillion in value during 2020 alone. So you had that happening alongside the scenario where you had, as I said, by the middle of last year, 400,000 small businesses that had been murdered by government mandates. And you had um, you know, millions more that are struggling to survive and the way that the, the gaslighting is sort of happening is one, the, the narrative that we had lockdowns, we didn't have full lockdowns, we had targeted lockdowns, again, not based on data and science, but based on political cloud and connections, so that it, it really focused on these small businesses. It wasn't focused on the vulnerable populations, it wasn't focused on uh, the elderly or those with comorbidities, it was focused from an economic standpoint on those people who, who didn't have the, the political clout. And it got so much so that later on in the year when there was like reopenings, like if you were a bar in New York, you had to serve food, but you couldn't just serve chips, you had to serve dip. So like dip now protects you from COVID or something like that was the science that they were relying on, I don't know. So, you know, you saw all these things happening and they were in, in this sort of um, very targeted way. So we weren't all in it together and we didn't have full lockdowns. If you would have locked down those big companies, if you would have not supported the stock market, and those companies had the incentive to say, this is wreaking havoc on the economy. Maybe it lasts two weeks and then it's kaput. But because that didn't happen, it was only those who didn't have the power and the clout and connections and the lobbying dollars and whatnot. It was allowed to go on you know, in 15 days to slow the spread. It has become 500 and something days to slow the spread at this point. So I think that is those issues that are, um, you know, completely overlooked. There, we didn't have full lockdowns and we were not all in it together. And then of course, it's the support piece, which is on the small business side, their property rights were taken for the quote unquote public good. And the concepts in the constitution that covers this is eminent domain. If you take somebody's property for the, the public good, then you need to give them appropriate compensation. And PPP, both in terms of the amount of total dollars that were spent, as well as just the reflective of how long and how deep this went on in the small business community, did it was a fraction of what was needed in both um, under both scenarios. So they didn't get the rescue dollars. But if you ask a lot of people, they'll rewrite that narrative because that's what they're being told by the media and that's what they're understanding and that's the picture that they're painting, which like you said is bizarre because you'd think they'd wanna be on the, the uh, side of the small guy, the little guy, and instead now they're on the side of the big powerful corporations. Yeah, I mean, really early on, I think when the lockdowns first came out, there were some places that would shut down smaller businesses, but Walmart would remain open. And I mean, I just started questioning that because it's like you're sending all of these people into one location rather than being able to go to many different locations. So once you have COVID isolated in one area, you would think that it would spread there. I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm not thinking correctly there. But then you also started to see unemployment drop and the stock market just 
rise. It went the completely different direction. And that's when I started to recognize things were really disconnected. And then speaking of in like 2000, I think it was mid 2019, like the summer of 2019, the Federal Reserve first um, lowered their interest rates. And I think that a lot of people really, at least the ones who acknowledge that we are in a crisis, they will probably call it like the COVID bubble or something like that. They'll say that this is the cause of COVID. But the fact that the Federal Reserve that early on was lowering interest rates was very concerning to me. Um, do you write pretty extensively about the Federal Reserve and, and what they did in the book? I do. I have an entire chapter, chapter five, um, about the Federal Reserve and uh, their, as they call it, the decades-long role in enabling the transfer of wealth from Main Street to the wealthiest individuals. Subtitle slightly slicker than that, but that's basically the concept. And the reason that I do is because, A, it's, it's a very opaque and hard to understand concept that everyone um, you know kind of tunes out when they when they hear about it because it is intentionally difficult to understand. So I spent a lot of time really trying to break it down in everyday language so people can get a sense of what's going on. But truthfully, it's one of the biggest problems that we're facing in terms of the imbalance um, of the of sort of the playing field, the capitalistic playing field, and in terms of, of thwarting wealth creation opportunities for average Americans. So I thought that it's really important to talk about them and uh, the feedback that I get. So my two favorite chapters in the book are the chapter about the Fed and the chapter about China, which is chapter 12. And the feedback that I have been getting is that there are three favorite chapters. Those are two of the favorites. And then everyone loves the timeline that was done uh, in the beginning as well, because it really goes back, even though we lived through it, until you kind of go back and see some of the things that happened, like and put the whole thing together. You're like, wow, that really happened. Um, so that's the feedback. So people love understanding the Fed because they, you know, they hear about it and they don't really understand how it impacts their life, but it is such a huge impact on that wealth creation and economic freedom piece that I couldn't write the book without that. Yeah, it's it's extremely interesting how vague the terms that they use are. And, and you're absolutely right that it's supposed to be confusing. Like, when Jerome Powell goes out there and he's speaking, he says things like, you know, we're trying to reach substantial further progress, but then he won't define what that means. And then he's like um, talking about how inflation is transitory, but then everyone thinks that that has more to do with the rising prices than it does the actual rate of inflation. Um, and he also acknowledged in a recent uh, town hall that most of the tools that they used are only to be used in emergency situations. Can you, kind of, <laughs> right. Isn't that hilarious? But can you explain like what exactly they did to the listener? Cause I think that it it's pretty pernicious and it's probably, I mean, it's behind most everything bad in this country. Like something that I tweeted the other day was the Afghanistan war could not have happened without the federal reserve inflating the money supply to fund it. Um, and I just, yeah, I think people really need to understand it. Yeah, so to kind of take a step back is just understanding that, um, and I, I go through the history of the book, but the, the way that the Federal Reserve was created was intentionally created in this sort of guise or cloak 
of independence. And this, uh, a lot of this is pulled um, from Dr. Murray Rothbard. Some of you may know him. He's got a really great book called The Case Against the Fed. And, and he talks in more detail. So if you like what you hear and you want to really dig deep into it, that's another good source book as well. Um, but it's, you know, it's kind of, it, it's supposed to look like, oh, it's this independent entity, but their mandate, which comes from Congress, is to stabilize prices and to make sure we have full employment. So why would the country outsource that to something that was a truly independent agency? Like that, that doesn't make a lot of sense to start with. Um, then if you just look at the way that it behaves, so as I said, it gets its mandate from Congress. If it earns a profit, which it might do at times like it, like we have now, where it has assets on its balance sheet and it's collecting interest or whatnot um, that are that's a, a, over and above uh, its operating expenses, its profits go back to the treasury, <laughs> the U.S. Treasury. So it's not like its profits are going back to its shareholders. So this whole concept that this is like it's some independent entity really doesn't make a lot of sense. And as I said, you know, they have this, this sort of dual mandate, um, which they have in effect abandoned. So what has happened over time, and, and we can argue like whether or not like you really need this body making projections and, and get, you know, interfering in the market, but you know, they have different tools that impact interest rates. Um, and that's, you know, kind of, and they put assets on the balance sheet also then to in, impact interest rates and, and change the money supply that, that uh, is available in order to meet these supposed objectives. And it's always been um, some level of interference, but it really uh, became crazy during the Great Recession. And the things that they did in terms of taking interest rates down to basically their, their target, what they call the Fed funds rate, which basically sets a whole bunch of other interest rates, um, it's basically took it down to zero to 0 0.25% or 25 basis points um, for a period of like seven years. <laughs> so if you're going back to an emergency situation and you feel like you need to do this, you know, okay, maybe you can make a, an argument that you need to do it, you know, for a six month period or a year, but like to say that you have a crisis for seven years is insane. Um, and then part of the tools, again, that they used to do this is going out and making purchases of assets in the market that they put on their balance sheet but they don't have any money. <laughs> so what they do is they, what's called printing money, but it's not even printing. There's no like machine that's actually printing it. It's just an accounting entry. So it's like, oh, I'm going to add some money in my account. I'm going to go out and buy things. So if you and I were to do that, that would be considered, you know, illegal activity, hacking, counterfeiting, whatnot. And we would go to jail. They do it and it's considered monetary policy. And so they go out and they buy securities, which are usually things like the U.S. Treasury debt. So they are, in effect, allowing our government to overspend and acting and stepping in as a buyer of our debt. And that's the way that they're affecting all of these things. So they're pushing down interest rates and putting this these assets on their balance sheet with fake money and allowing us to incur uh, more debt obligations. And it's just kind of this vicious cycle. 
And so during the Great Recession, as I said, seven years, we had a zero percent interest rate policy via the Fed's fund rate. And they also had multiple trillions of dollars of assets that they put on their balance sheet, which is far and above a normalized level. So we were never out of the woods there. Like we had barely started to raise up interest rates again. And then, of course, the market doesn't like when that happens. So there was pressure and then they were anticipating a slowdown. So they started to take it down. They never really you know, started shedding the balance sheet. So by the time this whole crisis came along, you know, we barely had lifted up the interest rates. Then they were pulled back down to zero again. And then they were adding to the balance sheet to the point that we now have more than $8 trillion sitting on the Fed's balance sheet. And that incremental amount looks a lot like the amount of value that was created in terms of these biggest companies in the market. Go figure. So you can kind of see that cycle. And, you know, this does a lot of really bad things because not only does it enable reckless government spending, and frankly, I personally think that's the reason why they're holding down interest rates, because they know the amount that we're spending to service that debt in terms of interest expense uh, is so big right now that if that those interest rate uh, increases and our debt is still increasing, like we're on a trajectory to hit 30 trillion, not, you know, not too distant future, um, that that money is going to crowd out other spending. So I, I feel like that's kind of that one of part of their secret mandate as well as propping up the stock market. But think about that. Like if you are a saver or you are a retiree and you are trying to live your life and you could normally under normal scenarios, put your money in the bank and earn 2% interest in a CD or two and a half percent, that's not able to happen anymore. You earn nothing. You try to get a CD, it's like 0.1% or something stupid like that. And so you have to take on additional risk in order to just maintain the lifestyle that you're expecting. So that's hurting you as like a, a main street participant. And if you're a small business, you probably don't have the wherewithal to take on a lot of debt. But if you're a big business, you do. And so that money that's now available basically for free because they've disrupted risk in the market now goes to these big corporations at almost no cost to them. And they can use that as capital to compete with you in the market. So the small businesses and the savers and the retirees are funding these big companies and their multiples are expanding. And so the Federal Reserve and the government together are enabling this bad behavior. And like, I think that's, you know, the essence of what people really need to get their heads wrapped around. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people have started to recognize some or they become suspicious of some actors within the economy. So uh, BlackRock has showed up in a lot of news headlines. Um, Everything I tried, this is my fifth media hit today. Everyone wants to talk about BlackRock. So please, let's talk about BlackRock. Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, I think specifically in Montana, it's important because they're buying up a, a bunch of properties here, um, twice the value that uh, the market price. And I've read some headlines that say that they actually created kind of like an implicit contract with the Federal Reserve. Um, can you explain explain exactly what's happening there and how they're using them? 
Yeah. So first of all, BlackRock is probably the biggest company and most powerful company you've never heard of, uh, or maybe you have heard of them, but a lot of people haven't. And they are, I think they're the largest, if not, they're one of the largest money managers, put that in quotes, um, in the entire world. Uh, as of the last thing I saw, they have more than $9 trillion in assets under management. And, you know, sometimes when we talk about these big numbers, it, it's hard to like get context. Like what, like what does that, what does 9 trillion even mean? The GDP of Canada is somewhere around 2 trillion. So it's like four and a half times the entire output of a year of Canada they are managing. And so as you can imagine, they're, they're pretty powerful and they're very well connected. Um, I do talk about this in the book that basically they were hired by the Treasury and the Fed uh, to help with this you know, emergency policy and, and helping the Fed get around the rules of what they can and can't buy to buy securities um, to help uh, you know stable, stabilize the markets that you know had a record year. Uh, I don't know how much of that they actually did or how much they ended up getting paid, but it just kind of shows sort of the closeness um, of that. But they have been coming up a lot because obviously they, as well as other money managers, they're get, they're getting thrown out there because you know they're they're the biggest dog out there. But there are plenty of money managers who are taking advantage of the fact that they have this basically uh, access to capital at like almost no cost, and the Fed has disrupted yield in the market. So for them to earn a return on investment for that $9 trillion, like they're out of places for them to go, you know, with an appropriate risk reward scenario. So we've seen a lot of money managers, whether it be BlackRock, whether it be pension funds or whatnot, um, go out and compete with individuals to purchase in homes, basically. And we've seen, um, one of the major manufacturers um, sold a whole neighborhood. Like basically they, they, they build a bunch of new homes and they just in one fell swoop sold it at double the price that they would have normally got because you have these big guys coming in with all of this capital that we've basically enabled, you know, taxpayers money or a drag on the taxpayers money. So it really is this, um, as I said, an enablement of wealth transfers. And there are some other things um, about you know, BlackRock in terms of their relationship with China. They just got a go ahead to, um, and, and again, one of several that are going to be introducing mutual funds into China um, and have you know, been talking about increasing exposure to China and, and portfolios. So, you know, <laughs> it's kind of back to like who's in the club and who's out of the club. They're definitely in the club and your small business is definitely not in the club. And you can see that they're having wildly different results. Yeah. So you talk a little bit about Occupy Wall Street and you had an article, I think it was in Fox Business that said, um, let me find it here. GameStop AMC was just the beginning. It looks like our entire economy is rigged. And then you called it the digital version of Occupy Wall Street. Um, do you know what the status of the, that movement is? And is it still strong? Has it fizzled out? And can you kind of explain what happened? Yeah, no, it is. So, um, so the digital Occupy Wall Street was actually a, a term that was given to me by a member of the they, they call themselves the ape community. 
um, which are really online retail traders who have rallied together to you know, kind of take a stand against Wall Street. And instead of you know, holding a sign in the streets, they're using their balance sheets. They're participating and they're saying that, you know, we want a fair shake in the market. And this is happening on Reddit forums and YouTube channels and Twitter and whatnot. And it still is going strong. Um, you know, they have a couple of different stocks that they're very well invested in, but you have a lot of young investors who are learning about due diligence and learning about stocks and in trying to understand the different mechanisms. Um, they're highly focused on the execution of trades because they're more traders than they are uh, long-term investors, many of them. Um, but they're trying to, to make a point uh, of that, hey, you know, we want to participate in that club too. Like we want to be beneficiaries of this. And we're not just saying like, eat the rich. We, we want to be the rich. And I think it's a really, it's a missed opportunity. A lot of the media, a lot of the big players have been very dismissive instead of taking the time to mentor um, a generation, the next generation of investors. And I think that that's a lot of the problems we're having. We're having capitalists pulling up the, the ladder behind them and not espousing um, the benefits of capitalism. You're having the market participants not you know, mentor these younger investors and they're just going on and doing these these things that are, are are taking away wealth creation opportunities and putting up barriers and not understanding how that impacts them as well. Um, it seems like a really stupid game to play, but unfortunately that's the, the situation that we're in. Yeah. So in your bio, it says that you're a recovering investment banker. Um, <laughs> what do you mean by that? Were you affected by like the 2008 crash? No, not at all. So I started my career um, in corporate finance. So I was uh, one of those folks that helped um, mostly medium-sized companies raise capital to grow their businesses. Um, and particularly, I did a lot in restaurants. So if you've ever eaten at a Cheesecake Factory or P.F. Chang's or an Einstein's Bagels or Lone Star Cafe or Lone Star Steakhouse or Rainforest Cafe, whatnot, um, I worked on helping those financings, IPO, secondary offerings, and some mergers and acquisitions as well. And, uh, and help them grow. So if you got fat eating at the Cheesecake Factory, I played a tiny role in bringing that to your town. So I apologize. Um, but uh, so, <laughs> you know, I, I was in that world uh, for some time and then exited to do you know, a number of other things. And so I always say I'm a recovering investment banker because deal making's in my blood and I'm always helping somebody with a, a deal and I still do some like licensing work and joint venture kind of stuff. So in recovery, like step step 11 of a 12 step process. Um, but no, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't impacted in the same way because of the, the types of things that I was doing and, and kind of the shift in my career, but it's allowed me to have sort of courtside seats um, to the markets and participate you know, in the markets and on, on one side, um, as well as then later on, on the other side of the market. And uh, yeah, it's been a, an interesting and, and sort of, as I've studied markets for most of my life, you'll also become a pundit on there and be able to go on television and kind of break down what I'm seeing happening on a day-to-day -day basis. I'm wondering if there was a particular story or event or like an anecdotal story um, 
that happened during this last year that kind of stuck out to you that motivated you to write this book? Like, was there an event that really moved you? Um, I, I know that a lot of people have stories like Shelley Luther or the Attilus gym. Um, so I'm wondering if there was anything that particularly stood out to you. I mean, so, so many, I've heard so many horrendous stories. So I wrote the book. Um, I was approached actually to write a, a book about the sort of historic economic moment that happened. And I didn't know what the book was going to be when I started writing it. I just you know, kind of laid out what was going on and then ended up following that to a, a logical conclusion. Although as somebody who's been an advocate for small businesses, um, really for a dozen years or so, that was obviously something that came up right from day one because they were the first businesses that were targeted for shutdown. They didn't get a fair shake uh, in terms of the PPP and the CARES Act. So we knew that was gonna be a big part of the story. Uh, didn't really realize the full scope until kind of done, kind of sorting through everything. And unfortunately I had to cut it off at some point uh, just to get this thing you know, out. But obviously there's been a long tail impact in terms of supply chain and inflation and competing with the government um, to get workers <laughs> and all of those kinds of things that kind of came after I had to stop writing the book to get it to, to market. So um, it's pretty crazy, but yeah, there I'll, I'll share just like two little tidbits and then a longer story. So there's a, a place here in Chicago called Southport Lanes that had um, been in business for almost 100 years. And they are gathering establishments. And what really struck me is that they had to close their doors because of these mandates, but they had survived prohibition as a bar. So like the fact that you could survive prohibition, but you couldn't survive what the government had done was just such a, a stark contrast to me. Um, another uh, Chicago-centric story is that one of my Twitter followers had a very dear family friend um, who he had a, a carpet cleaning business and he was shut down early. He didn't qualify for PPP in the first tranche because he had had some previous bad debts and the business just kept going south and kept going south and he turned to alcohol and he ended up um, killing himself. And unfortunately, there are too many stories like that as well. So that, you know, that really stuck with me. Um, and then in terms of just kind of the, you know, scope of like, you know, kind of a typical story, the Pineapple Hill Grill and Saloon story, which is in the book, um, is one of my favorites. It, it not because, I mean, I, I sympathize with the small business owner, but in terms of just showing like side by side how stark things were. This was a restaurant you know, in the, I believe it's uh, Sherman Oaks area of um, California, LA, LA County, I believe that it's is the, the umbrella county. And they had been part of the community for a long time. When COVID hit, um, they were allowing some outdoor seating. So the reports were $80,000 that they spent to comply to build this outdoor seating that would comply with the pro COVID protocols so that they crazy. could continue their business. Yeah, it's insane. So then after this is done, there's a mandate, no more outdoor seating. 
So you have the small business owner who is just like, doesn't know what to do. They've invested all this extra money to comply. They still can't get it right. And then in the same parking lot, like hundreds of feet away from their outdoor seating, there's a giant tent that is erected because a movie production is going to film a movie and they have to have a catering tent so they could feed their cast and crew. So you could cater for the cast and crew outdoor seating and dining hundreds of feet away and that was given a pass, but this community member who had spent all this money to comply couldn't. And so you saw the disparity there. And then it was found out shortly thereafter that Gavin Newsom had broken his own COVID protocols, went to dinner at French Laundry. And one of the people there was a lobbyist uh, for the movie industry. And then you start putting all these pieces together. And so it's just such a stark example of you know why this was not based on science and why this was completely political clout and connection. Yeah, and can you repeat more of the um, uh, statistics that you mentioned earlier? How many small businesses were actually killed? So, you know, the, the numbers are, because most people don't understand small business, I have to, when I see numbers, I have to kind of synthesize them and go, does, does this really make sense? Um, so we know we had a, a very good project that was run out of um, Harvard, I believe, uh, that had said by... June of 2020, more than 400,000 small businesses had been killed. And we know that the Biden administration picked up that more than 400,000 number uh, when they you know, first came out with information in 2021. So we know if it was that at least that at that point, extrapolating, it's probably a couple million is my guess. Um, we've had other uh sort of the Opportunity Project, which is also affiliated with Harvard, say that 40 per, like 35 to 40% of small businesses have closed. That number is not accurate. Um, there were 30.2 million small businesses before COVID. There's no way that that many of them closed. Um, but what we might, what that might have been is employer businesses. So there's six of the 30.2 million, about 6 million had employees that would foot similar to my projections if you take 40% of that. So that could be what they were talking about is the employer businesses, or it could be consumer facing businesses um, or metro areas. But I think that when all is said and done, it's probably a couple million, which again, if you think about how many big businesses there are, there's only 10 to 15,000 big businesses in this country, depending on how you categorize them. So it's like some major multiple of just the overall number of businesses that are big were actually killed. Um, and we'll probably never have a good read on the number. And part of the reason is because of the stimulus money, a lot of people started like side hustles and they formed like an LLC or you know through some sort of incorporation around that or whatnot. So like overall, it's like, oh, well, like, look at all this great business formation and net net, it wasn't really that bad. But, you know, losing your business that's been around for 100, 100 years or your family owned business or your, 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 your restaurants or your hair salon or whatever it is, you know, for somebody's side hustle, like that's not an even Steven trade there. And again, that's the detail that's going to get lost in the postmortem analysis. 
So there, I'm sure that a lot of people who will listen to this, they'll object and they'll say, well, we had to do this because of COVID. Um, but I mean, it, it seems pretty clear saying that a lot of this wasn't even motivated by COVID and that a lot of it had to do with special interests. So I guess, what would you say to those people? Did this help? I mean, was it able to mitigate COVID at all? Um, do they have any argument at all? I don't think they do. So if you if you had to do something, if your your argument is you have to do something, then why wouldn't you trade off? Like why wouldn't it be a small business one week and a big business the next? Like why would you just target the small businesses? Um, we also saw, you know, in some of the mandates, like when when the second wave happened uh, with some of the mandates in New York City, where they only traced 1.4% of the COVID cases to restaurants, yet those were, were what were getting reshut down again. So like there, there's no data that's saying any of these areas were hotbeds. And we certainly know for the places that were left open, like I'm not aware of any Walmarts or Targets or Amazon warehouses that were like major death pools. Like I don't, did, have you heard of any of those? Like I didn't, come across any of them in my research. So there's no evidence to say leaving certain places open would have, have caused that. But again, if you say, if you're going to tell me you want to do something, because I'm not even trying to argue what the right outcome is. The point is that if you're going to do that, then you need to appropriately compensate those small businesses for subjugating their property rights. So if you would have said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to target the small guys it's easier, it's more efficient, whatnot, smaller, whatever the reason is, we're going to take a trillion to a trillion and a half dollars, which again, still a lot of money, but a fraction of what was spent last year. And we're going to keep your employees on the payroll and just tell them not to come in, but just keep paying them. And, you know, we'll, we'll support that. We'll support your rent. We'll support the overhead and, and, you know, replace your revenue from last year. You would have bought two to three months worth of mitigation where you then could have gone in um, and you know focused on the elderly and those with comorbidities and the things that ended up happening once you did those reopenings. And you would have preserved all of those businesses and you would have created at least a more even and fair playing field. So again, like I, I if you wanna argue that something needed to be done, which again, this is, it doesn't make any sense based on data science, that's fine, but then you have to compensate that. So you didn't have full liberties, you didn't have full lockdowns, and you didn't compensate the people who had their property rights trampled upon. So none of those things happened. All that happened is we transferred wealth from Main Street to Wall Street. Yeah, and there, there's a question that I think has been debated, especially by people like Elizabeth Warren, regarding the Federal Reserve and how maybe we should start to funnel the money towards um, disenfranchised people. And I'm wondering what, what you think about the argument about, because obviously there are Cantillon effects where if you inject money into a certain part of the economy, the first people who get it, they don't, they aren't affected by it. Like they actually benefit from um, the initial money and then prices uh, rise eventually. And then the people who didn't get it initially, are hurt. So I'm wondering, they always use very vague arguments um, or vague terms to argue <laughs> for this, but like, what's wrong with just doing the same thing, but giving it to different people? 
So this goes back to, do you believe in free markets or do you believe in central planning? Do you believe in freedom choice, transparency, all of our actions dictating outcomes, or do you believe in a handful of people making choices on behalf of the masses using force, coercion, and control? I believe in the freedom and transparency side. You know, all of the statistics point from all of history that that's a better option. And as we have moved further away from that, we have had worse economic outcomes. Um, and certainly the people who are doing the projections, even at the Fed, if you look at their PCE projections, you can see that you know they continue to be off and off and off. So the smartest people in the room still couldn't project anything. Why are we giving them control over allocating you know trillions of dollars of you know maneuvers? What we need is for them to just not interfere in the market and let the market sort itself out. If you create a, 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 fair, a fair playing field, yes, there are some inherent imbalances in terms of size, but there are some inherent imbalances because you have better relationships with customers and you can compete based on the merits. We don't need a bunch of people, particular people who are hired in the way that we hire them by popularity contests, to be dictating what we're doing with money supply and trying to like engineer this. Like we just need to remove the barriers so that more people can participate in the wealth creation opportunities. There's nothing that the government has done ever, ever, ever that has created wealth for people. They are not in the business of wealth creation. They, their best they can do is move some stuff around. And I would say for the people that they've done that for, over periods of time, it's actually kept them and their families generationally from creating wealth. So the best thing that we can possibly do is get them out of the equation, rein in the Fed, rein in the interference, and let everybody compete it out using freedom, choice, and transparency. So I'm wondering if there are any policies or any events that um, haven't been talked about as much that you think need to be focused on, like through all of your interviews, with libertarians or um, freedom-minded people, is there a specific thing that the government did that you don't think gets enough attention or are these the main ones that you focus on? So, yeah, so we rating in the Fed, um, obviously in terms of current policies, raising the minimum wage, pro-act, horrible, this $3.5 trillion budget framework, ridiculous, anything that expands Spending anything that expands the purview and the size of the government is just, you know, it's it's bad. And I just don't feel like, and part of the reason I, I really focused on this in the book, people understand the scope of the government, like how just big it has gotten and the things that it's in charge of, and they don't even have experts in there. So, you know, before COVID, before all this in, enhanced spending at all levels, $8.1 trillion that they're spending a year that's now significantly increased. The, the number of laws that they continue to pass, the, the number of roadblocks that they create in terms of their regulation, um, you know, and so on and, and so forth, the purview, the things that they're involved in in our lives, like there, there's no way even if you had the best people in there, that they would be making great decisions on these things, let alone doing all of these things. And then the politicization and the change over every couple of years, it's just, it's diseconomies of scale. And so we need to like remove the purview. We need to 
get more power back to the states. We need the government to be um, not the middleman, you know, in the middle of things. And I just don't think there's just enough focus on like, everyone wants to break up big tech. Like who wants to break up the government? Who wants to break up the duopoly of the two party system? Like, like wh why are we not spending more time talking about those concepts? They're the most powerful entity and they've got a military behind them and the ability to you know tax us and throw us in jail in the monetary system so like it seems like if there's any place to start um you start there and then everything else comes with it so that you know i'm sure everybody talks about some of those things but you know that's that's where it all ends yeah i mean I think if any if 2020 taught us anything, it's that decentralization, sovereignty, or localism, or whatever you want to call it, really matters. Um, and just the competition between states, like it, it's crazy how if you just look at a state at first glance, how different it could be from another. Like I live in Montana and we're relatively free here. Like we we repealed certificate of need laws this past legislative session. Like we're a relatively free market here. Um, whereas if you look at New York right now, they have vaccine passports. It's crazy. Um, and, and since we're talking about that, I actually got a question from my friend Stratton Davis, and he's wondering if um, you've done any work on uh, the differences between states that locked down and those that didn't as long. Um, is there any, did the states that remained open, did they benefit from doing so or and I guess, did the states that were they close, the states that closed, did they benefit in any way? I guess, um, did you look into that? Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Yeah, I did. I did. And I did a little debrief for the book. And obviously, you know, things have shifted a little bit as um, time has gone on and the Delta variant has reemerged and whatnot. But the fascinating thing, um, and, you know, we saw some of the data, the early data, so it wasn't entirely a surprise, but there wasn't really a correlation between having a heavy handed approach and having a better health outcome. And part of that is that, you know, the places that had the heavy handed approach did have like more, you know, centralization in terms of their population. Some of them had more of an elderly population. So those things are naturally going to skew it, but it's not like those that took a lighter touch approach all of a sudden you know, saw these horrendous outcomes in terms of deaths per million. And in fact, you know, New York and New Jersey, because of some of the big mistakes they made with the nursing homes early on, um, still end up at the, at the top of those charts. From an economic standpoint, certainly those who took a lighter touch approach um, had better economic outcomes, but they also had less deviance because they also were places that were less likely to be affected by travel or, you know, have these huge financial centers or whatnot. So again, there is a little bit of, um, you know, other things that factor into the data, but yeah, they had better economic outcomes if you had a lighter touch approach, but they didn't, it didn't necessarily change the health outcome. And I think that was um, very apparent in terms of, you know, how are these decisions really being made? Was this really being made based on the data and the science? And it really indicates that it wasn't. Yeah, even early on, I talked to, I think it was Anthony Davies, and, and we were just talking about like um, the unintended consequences of locking down, or maybe the intended consequences of locking down, um, is that what you're going to have is you're going to have the same amount of people who would have died from COVID anyway, once we open back up. I think it was like, the fall surge, 
And then you would all you would have all of these excess deaths, like the suicides that you referenced earlier, or yeah. um, the amount of cancer patients that weren't able to have access to their health care. Um, you know, and we have plenty of these examples, and we don't even know what the numbers amount to right now. It's it's crazy. Well, and then also just the long-term drag. I mean, think about the education um, that our students have missed out on. Think of the emotional toll that this has taken on kids and adults alike that could affect you know their health and their productivity on an ongoing basis. So this has created massive consequences. And that was one of the really odd things um, that you know, really makes people question. And if it hasn't made you, you should, you should spend some time questioning. It's like, why just COVID? Like, why, why was nothing else? It's still not being considered. I mean, there are other things. I mean, I, I have to ask, and I, I have asked on Twitter, a couple of years ago, we had a really bad flu that killed like 80,000 people, including a lot of children. It was much more virulent um, in terms of attacking kids than it was the elderly. So the question is, if we have another bad flu, is this now the MO that like we're not going to accept any you know deaths? And if we are, like where is that line in terms of you know risk mitigation, which is a strategy, versus risk elimination, which is untenable? It's it's a fantasy. You can't eliminate risk. You can only manage it and mitigate it. So I think that's the question is like, why is everyone just focused on COVID when they're, and, and I know someone's like, because 600,000 people, that, like, yeah, maybe, maybe I'll, you know, I'll question those numbers a little bit. And yes, it was bad because it's a new thing that, that happened. But again, like what's the principle that we're going on and why are we not focusing on the vulnerable populations only and why we, are we not focusing on other things that kill people? Like if you're concerned about their deaths, like, like, you know, if you can't get health care for your heart or cancer or whatnot, like, is that death not equal to a COVID death? Like, it just, it doesn't make any sense. So I would, I would really be honing in on like, what, like, why? Why is it that they're the, just blinders around this one thing? It's very, very odd. Yeah, I agree. Um, and obviously, there's the relatively new development. I think a lot of people could predict that it was coming. And I wonder if you foresaw it. Um, is the vaccine passports and how that'll affect small businesses. <laughs> um, and I, I guess as a part of this question, um, what do you think the end game is? Cause like I, I saw the recent ICPP report where they essentially said, if we don't, if we don't shut down um, all emissions immediately, uh, then we will never be able to recover or something like that. I, that's uh, I'm obviously summing everything up. So I just wonder if, you think that this is a precedent that they've set in order so that in order to do things like that in the future, or I guess, what do you think? Why did yeah. they do this other than the financial reason? Yeah. So, you know, I'll just be very clear. Like I'm a doctor. I have no expertise um, in, you know, anything that's, you know, health care related. I do have a lot of common sense and I've gotten sick a lot. <laughs> so, you know, I get the flu every year. I go out and I get a flu shot. This is something that we deal with based on everybody I've talked to that is a healthcare expert and the research I have done. 
it seems to me that COVID is very likely to become an endemic to our society, an endemic virus, something that stays with us that we're literally going to have to contend with every year. And assuming as it mutates and as you know, we build up more natural or vaccine immunities and whatnot, that it probably starts to look more like a flu where it still ends up killing people, but you know, we're as a population more equipped to deal with it. So, you know, the fact that we're going to somehow eliminate this worldwide virus when we, you know, we're living with all these other viruses, it seems like that probably isn't the case to me. And so the question is like, well, at what point do we just figure out how to live amongst it again, risk mitigation? I could be wrong. I hope I'm wrong. It's not I've had it. Um, so, you know, that, that's sort of a, a question to ask. But yeah, there, there's no doubt that as we move towards central planning, and as I said, we've been moving along that spectrum, and it's, it's like closer and closer and closer to full central planning, that they, you know, the powers that be want as much power and control that they have. And, you know, this potentially could be looked back upon as the roots of a social credit system, which is a super, super scary, non-free market, non-freedom oriented scenario. And you know that's a, re a really bad potential outcome. Um, so even though you know, I, I believe it, I, th I think the vaccine made sense for me. I think everyone should talk to their healthcare provider and find out if it's right for them. Uh, you know, I, I think that the passport idea is insane because if the vaccines work, then I'm protected. I don't care what anybody else does. Like I'm good. And if they're not, if the vaccines don't work, then we've got a whole other set of things that we need to be talking about. Um, and so this, this idea that they're using the cover and the fear porn to push this agenda and to get further involved in controlling our lives is, is really scary. And as you may be able to say, I've got my Jewish star around my neck. Um, you know, the idea of, of papers and tracking people doesn't go, uh, go down so well with my people. So, uh, word of caution against buying into that. <laughs> well, I think that that's a great place to finish up. I know you got to get going soon. Um, if you just want to pitch any of your social media and where people can contact you, please do. Yes. Well, first I'm going to pitch the book because I'm a capitalist. You can see it behind me, the war on small business. And, um, you know, obviously as a capitalist, buy it wherever you want. But if you want to be thoughtful about how you spend your dollars, consider buying it local, consider buying it through bookshop.org who will fulfill it from a local small business bookseller. Um, and I hope that you'll take the time to read it and educate yourself about the Fed and about China and about all the things that, that really did happen. So you can have these discussions like we've been having today. And then honestly, the best place to find me, um, as long as you're okay with a warped sense of humor, because I will like things that are offensive, uh, at Carol J.S. Roth. But uh, it's if you have a warped sense of humor, I think it's real funny. Um, but uh, some people have a hard time kind of putting the whole thing together. So. Yeah. <laughs> and I follow her. She's really great. I'll link to everything in the description as well. And I'll certainly be buying your book because I'm impressed. I just need to catch up on my reading list. <laughs> <laughs> well, understood. Thanks so much for having the discussion. And it, it's so heartening um, you know, for somebody like myself to 
who are young and are kind of getting involved, you know, in these concepts around freedom and economic freedom and wealth creation and just the, the key principles. I think that's the most optimism um, that we have right now in this country is in your hands and your, your peers' hands. So uh, really, really thrilled to have the discussion with you. Yeah, me too. Thank you. It's the weekend, we can let go. It's the full send, it's the get-go.